I'm not a very fit person. Uh, I kind of mentioned that last week when I talked about hiking. Uh, but I did used to play soccer. And because I wasn't a very fit person, I played the role, the position that doesn't require any running, uh, the goalkeeper. Um, and I loved being a goalkeeper. I used to play a lot of indoor soccer, futsal. Um, and like I said, I wasn't very fit. But I don't know if it was because I was young, dumb and stupid. Uh, but I loved the idea of putting my body on the line to stop the opposing team from scoring a goal. Even if the striker was like point-blank range and he was just about to smash the ball with everything that he had, I loved... I told you, like, I'm weird. I loved that feeling of just throwing myself at his feet and smothering the shot because it gave me, like, a, a sense of glory, like, if I saved it. If I didn't save it, it was just... You know, what a waste that was. But throwing my body on the line to smother or block a shot, it felt glorious to me. Uh, and as you can probably see, I'm not a big guy. I'm not a tall guy. Um, and I found out as I played soccer over the years that I'm not a very durable guy either. Uh, I got injured a lot. I had like three concussions. Uh, I got kicked in the throat once uh, while smothering a shot. And because I got kicked in the throat, my voice box got damaged couldn't talk for three weeks, um, which made it impossible. I went to the doctors trying to articulate what's wrong with me when you can't talk. Uh, I remember that. Uh, I had a partial tear in both rotator cuffs, both shoulders. Um, but again, young, dumb, and stupid. I loved the idea of willing to put my body on the line. And because I kept doing that, like back in the day, they used to have this Korean church competition called the Hallelujah Cup. Some of you guys might remember it. Uh, they used to play it at Lidcombe. And I loved the idea because the more I kept doing that, the opposing team started to remember me as the guy that doesn't care whether he gets injured or not. And because he doesn't care whether he gets injured, he certainly doesn't care if he injures the opposing team. I wasn't afraid to hurt myself. And I wasn't afraid to hurt them in the process as well. But uh, my love for soccer eventually came to an end because uh, I suffered like an insane concussion. I don't even remember it, but apparently two strikers kicked me in the head at the same time. And then I collided with them. I, I blacked out. And one of the things about a concussion is when you wake up, like even if you wake up straight away, you can't retain anything. Like I, apparently I asked my friend what the score was, like five you know, five, six times, and he kept saying, one nil, one nil, one nil, and I kept asking because that's what a concussion does to you. But the ref, you know, he, he, he stopped the game, and then I opened my eyes, I asked my friend what score it was, what the score was, he said, one nil, and then I turned to the coach and he said, Jay, we don't have any subs, you're going to have to keep playing. So I got to my feet, young, dumb, and stupid, so I'm going to keep playing. And I picked up the ball because it was obviously a foul on me. But something felt strange. I couldn't feel all my fingers on the ball. So I took my glove off. And my finger, my pinky finger was bent the wrong way. And I stopped the game. And I started waving my hand in the air. And all the players on the field saw and they started gagging. And then my mate came up to me. He was young, dumb, and stupid as well. And he said to me, Jay, it's dislocated. I can fix it for you. Let me pop it back in. 
And so he grabs my hand and he pulls it under him. And I'm like this. And he starts yanking at my pink pinky to kind of pull it and twist it back into the right direction. I screamed. I screamed. I've got a very high pain tolerance as well. I screamed and then it just got to the point where I was like, stop, 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 stop. I've got to go to the hospital. This, this isn't working. And then I went to the hospital. They took an x-ray and sure enough, it wasn't dislocated. It was broken. So my mate was yanking on a broken finger. The cure wasn't to pull it and pop it back into place. I needed surgery, and now I have a metal plate and a couple of pins holding my pinky together. I can't actually straighten it anymore, so if you notice, my, I've got a weird pinky. Um, but the reason I share this with you is because sometimes this is what our spiritual walk with Jesus is like. Because what my friend was doing, he, he, he was trying to treat the symptom instead of understanding what the condition was. For him, it's like his fingers bent the wrong way. Let me just pull it so that it points the right way. He was trying to fix the symptom instead of understanding what the actual diagnosis was. And that's something that we're going to touch on as we unpackage today's uh, passage from the Gospel of Mark. Now, last week we saw Jesus and his disciples go on a two-kilometer hike up a mountain. Uh, they were meant to have a prayer meeting once they got to the top, but... As you recall, it didn't take long for Peter, James, and John uh, to fall asleep. They seem to have a tendency to fall asleep during prayer meetings. So if you fall asleep during prayer meetings, you're in good company. Um, but they fell asleep, and then they were awakened to a terrifying sight. The transfiguration of Jesus, where the veil of Jesus' humanity was briefly lifted, and the disciples were greeted by the sight of Jesus' eternal glory. His face was shining like the sun. His clothes started to glow in the dark. And not only that, they got to witness Moses and Elijah, who we saw last week were figureheads that represented the Old Testament. Moses represented the law of God, so Genesis to Deuteronomy, and Elijah represented the prophets of God. And it was a climactic point in Mark's gospel. I also mentioned last week that, you know, the first half of Mark's gospel was kind of like part one. And then the transfiguration was kind of like the beginning of part two. And we saw up until chapter nine, throughout part one, there was this theme that kept being pushed. This theme of the identity of who the Messiah was. Who is Jesus? And throughout the first nine chapters, we saw constantly this theme popping up where people, they, they had a misunderstanding of what the Messiah was meant to look like. They thought the Messiah was a warrior king that would over, overthrow Caesar, overthrow Rome. But what scripture would reveal was that the Messiah was actually not a warrior king, but a suffering servant, not one that would conquer but one that would die and rise again. It was this version of the Messiah that was the embodiment of everything that the Old Testament promised about God. And so that was kind of why we saw Elijah and Moses appear last week at the Transfiguration, because they represented the crux of the Old Testament, and they were showing that everything about the Messiah was pointing towards the cross. Not an Alexander, not a Napoleon, not a Genghis Khan, but a suffering and dying saviour. Now in today's passage, it seems that Jesus and the three disciples, Peter, James and John, have come down this two kilometre mountain 
and they're greeted by the sight of chaos. There's like a, a giant crowd of people and they're arguing. Verse 14 reads, And when they came to the disciples, the, the, the nine that didn't go with them, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And so Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down and they see this giant crowd. And in the middle of this giant crowd are the nine remaining apostles that didn't go with them. And they're engaged in this all-out argument, this debate with the scribes who represented the Jewish leaders of the day. And whilst we don't know how big this crowd was, uh, we can take a guess uh, that it numbered in the thousands. Because, you know, Mark, whenever he uses this term great, uh, it, it doesn't mean like a couple of hundred. It usually means if the thousands, if not tens of thousands. And this crowd have gathered. Thousands of people have gathered and they're watching this back and forth exchange between the apostles, Jesus' hand-picked representatives, and the scribes. Thousands of people watching. And they're, they're, they're captivated by this argument. But then they see Jesus. Someone must have seen Jesus. They're like, it's Jesus. And they leave these guys and they run to the Christ to say hello. Um, Jesus, seeing the chaos, wants to know what this commotion is all about. And it's revealed in verses 17 and 18. That someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and whenever uh, throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they were not able. In the middle of all this chaos, this arguing, a man comes out. And he explains to Jesus that his son is oppressed by an evil spirit that makes him mute or can't speak. And not only that, it causes him to have convulsions, to foam at the mouth and make his body rigid. And upon first glance, uh, one could make a convincing argument that this presents all the hallmarks of someone that suffers from epilepsy. But... If we collate the other details from the other gospel accounts like Matthew and Luke, it becomes apparent that this is more than epilepsy. Uh, it seems whatever this spirit is, it's intent on destroying this young boy and it reacts the moment that it sees the Messiah approaching. Now, the problem that's arisen, uh, it's probably what triggered the argument with the scribes. And the problem is that this man brought his son to the disciples for them to exorcise the demon, and they weren't able to. And this would have been such a blow to their pride and their faith. Because if you read earlier on in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 6, when Jesus sent his apostles out on a mission trip, he said to them, he gave them a spe special type of power and authority. Mark 6, 7 says that he called the twelve before he sent them out, he began to send them out two by two and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. So this man would have brought his son to the apostles. He would have asked the apostles, can you heal my son? Can you exercise and purge this demon out of, the son, out of my son? And the apostles probably rolled up their sleeves saying, no problems, bring him over. I'm, I'm an expert in this. Oh, I've gone on multiple mission trips. I've seen Jesus do it. Oh, I'm a seasoned vet when it comes to casting out demons. And the father probably brought the son over. 
And the apostles probably declared, you know, I command you, come out of him. Nothing happened. They probably mixed up the wording as well to try and add a bit of variety. I charge you, come out of him. And nothing happened. Almost like a magic formula, like abracadabra, alakazam, nothing happened. And remember, whenever a miracle was being performed, wherever Jesus and the apostles went, remember that the Pharisees and the scribes were following them everywhere. They kept a close eye on the ministry of Jesus because they were waiting for that gotcha moment, the moment that they make a mistake or slip up or fail at something so that they could pounce and say, Aha, I knew it wasn't real. I knew you guys were frauds. And that's what was going on in today's passage. The disciples probably tried a whole variety of commands to cast this demon out. I charge you by the authority of my apostleship, come out of him. They did everything that they could to exercise this demon and nothing happened. And the scribes, this was what they were waiting for. And so they burst onto the scene, denouncing the apostles and presumably calling Jesus a fraud. Now, when all of this is made known to Jesus, Jesus responds in verse 19 by saying, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. What an indictment. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long Am I to bear with you? Now, what's interesting is that the way this is worded in the Greek, it implies that he's referring not to the people, but to the apostles. These rhetorical questions aren't aimed at the crowd or even the scribes, but Jesus' hand-picked disciples. He calls them faithless. Why? Because they should know better. Why should they know better? We'll find out later in the passage. But Jesus tells the boy to be brought to him. And with all the chaos that's going on around, you know, a lot of yelling, hurling of insults, Jesus engages in a conversation with the father out of compassion, out of love. Jesus asks the father, how long has this been happening to him? Remind you, like, mind you, everyone like behind them are arguing, hurling insults, and Jesus doesn't care about them, zones them out, and just looks at the father and says, how long has this been going on? And the father says, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now, this is an interesting response from the father. Because why did he seek Jesus out to begin with. He sought Jesus out because he heard that Jesus had the ability and the healing power and the authority to cast out and exercise demons. He knew that Jesus had the ability to restore his son. And yet, in this conversation, he doesn't ask Jesus to restore his son. But he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's almost like he's not expecting 
a healing anymore or a restoration anymore. He just wants something. No matter how small, he just wants something to improve the quality of life for his son. It's almost like he's saying, look, okay, Jesus probably can't fix my son, but maybe he can reduce the severity of the symptoms. And the reason that his view of Jesus became so downgraded, because remember, he, he embarked on this trip thinking, knowing that Jesus can do this, but the reason his expectations became so downgraded was probably because the, the apostles, who were meant to be spiritual extensions of Jesus in ministry, they failed so embarrassingly to do anything for his son. And the faith of the father was probably shaken up by this. Now, for me, the true healing and the true miracle uh, doesn't occur in the son. Yes, you have the son on one hand who's possessed by the demon, but Jesus is very intentional in his conversation with the father because he understands that it's not just an exorcism that's needed here. But Jesus wants to diagnose the core problem and give a remedy. And the core problem, Jesus says, is faithlessness. Jesus responds to his request. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. I'm not, I'm not here to reduce symptoms. I'm not here to improve quality of life. I'm here to fix the problem of faithlessness. And the father immediately responds by crying out what really is a paradoxical statement. It's like, if you don't know what paradoxical, it's like two statements that are made that are both true but kind of contradict each other. And that statement is, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe and help my unbelief. It's a paradox. But I think this is the honest heart cry of every true believer. I believe, help my unbelief. Because there is a sense in which we know about the power of God for salvation. We know that Christ extends his hand out to us, offering us grace and mercy. We know who he says he is. And in a sense, we do believe that. But our flesh is tainted by sin. And sin sows seeds of doubt. And even though we might not verbally deny that Jesus Christ is King, Lord and Saviour, there is a sense in which we often live our lives absent of the idea that Jesus is King, Lord and Saviour. And this is what Jesus wanted the Father to recognise, not just the symptoms, but the disease. Not just to see that the problem was the possession, as bad as that is, but beyond all this, Jesus draws out of the Father a recognition that what he needed above all things was faith. And more so, a faith that was dependent wholly upon Jesus. 
And Jesus exercises this demon, not just to restore the son, but to restore the father's faith. Verses 25 and 26. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he's dead. This exorcism brings such a huge transition from chaos, one second, because everyone was arguing, everyone was fighting, the boy was convulsing, chaos, one second, to instant peace, the next. So much peace that people think that this boy is dead, but Jesus reveals he's not dead because he raises him to his feet. Now, the passage then concludes with Jesus entering a house. We don't know whose house because Mark doesn't tell us. And once they get alone uh, and the apostles get some private time with Jesus, it's interesting that they wait until no one's around to ask because it was probably embarrassing for them. Uh, They go up to Jesus and they say, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus says, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And it's interesting that Jesus says this. Because Mark 6, like I mentioned earlier, stated that Jesus gave them authority to cast out demons. He gave them authority. They were under the assumption, because Jesus gave them authority, that they had the power to cast out demons. Can't really blame them for that. There was never any mention about extra praying that you had to do on top of that. Jesus said, I give give you authority to cast out demons. They took that, took Jesus at his word and thought, I have the power to cast out demons. And to understand what's going on here, we we need to look back at that rebuke that Jesus gave earlier. He called his disciples faithless. How long am I to bear with you? How long am I going to be with you? Because what the disciples had forgotten was that the authority that he had commissioned them with, that came from God. And power that comes from God has to be exercised by faith in God. They'd received authority and power, and instead of exercising this power and authority through faith, they'd gotten so used to trusting in the process. They'd followed Jesus in ministry for so long that they got used to trusting in the process and the routine that they began believing in themselves rather than relying on him. That's why when they asked Jesus in private, they don't ask him, what happened to the power and authority that you bestowed upon us? They ask, why couldn't we cast it out? Kind of like with the father and his possessed son. It had nothing to do with an inability on Jesus' part. Nothing to do with his authority or his integrity. But it was about the integrity of faith held by the apostles and held by the Father. And then that's how today's passage ends. And just to keep it short today, because we have communion, uh, I've limited the points to just one and that is to trust in the person and not the process Uh, last week I shared that every church I've served at I've served at about five or six churches uh, during my time in ministry 
And I used to ask different congregant members throughout those 12 years, uh, where are you at in your walk with Jesus? And I shared that the common response I'd get is I'm not where I should be. I'm struggling spiritually. I'm not where I'm meant to be. I'm trying to get to that place, but I just can't get there. I come to church, I don't really enjoy worship. I haven't been in the Word for a while. And we've all been there. I've been there. I'm going to be honest. I've been there many times. But what we learned from today's passage is that we need to diagnose the underlying condition instead of trying to find solutions for the symptom. Because so often we try to come up with solutions to fix the symptom, thinking that that's going to get me to where I need to be. But most times you'll find that that doesn't work. Like, I don't read my Bible enough. I've backslidden. My heart feels lukewarm. Okay, I haven't read my, read my Bible in a while. The answer to lukewarm faith is to read my Bible more. Or I haven't prayed in a while. The answer is to spend five minutes just praying and listing more petitions before God, and hopefully that will fix the situation. But what I love today about today's exorcism is that when this man asks Christ for help, Christ is almost like a physician because he listens to the symptoms and he diagnoses the disease. The man says, he's my son. He's the things that have been going on. He's the frequency of the symptoms. He's how long, you know, when the, when the onset of first symptoms began. And he asks Jesus, can you reduce the symptoms? But what we find is Jesus isn't interested in symptom control. He says, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. I'm not interested in symptom control. But that's sometimes what we do, isn't it? We look at the symptoms of our, or our backsliding, rather. We look that our heart is cold. We're not really in the word. We're not really praying. We don't really feel like coming to church. If we come to church, we don't really feel like worshipping. We don't really feel like going to CG groups. And so often we try to find remedies to fix the symptom instead of finding the underlying condition. And that's where we make the mistake of trusting in a process instead of the person of Christ. And that's my encouragement to you guys today. I don't know where you guys are at spiritually, but chances are if I ask you, where are you at spiritually, you'll probably give that answer that I mentioned earlier. The answer to fixing that isn't to roll up your sleeves and try to be a better person or a more holy person. The answer is to seek out the Christ. And it goes with anything. Uh, I used to be, you're going to find a lot of things about me over the coming months and years, but uh, I used to be a very heavy smoker back in the day. Um, I started smoking when I was 13, very young. Uh, I was a pack-a-day smoker up until I was about 25. Uh, I, I smoked for four years after I became a Christian. Very, very deadly habit. Very addictive habit. 
And I've met a lot of people that suffered from addictions that broke the chains of addictions. And you ask them, how did you break like smoking? And I've met guys that were like on meth and heroin and they kicked the habit. And you ask them, how did they do it? And the answer wasn't, I did it by trying to quit smoking or illicit drugs or illicit substances. Most of the brothers I know that quit, they'll say, I found something better. Something that captivated my attention, my joy. And it wasn't a process. It was a person. And so I'm not saying that CG is bad, prayer, prayer meetings are bad, women's conferences, they're all good things. These are things that are very important. Don't neglect any of these. But these things are all a means to an end to get you to encounter the person. And so when you do immerse yourself in scripture reading or in prayer, it'll do us well to remind ourselves that these things in the process itself, this isn't the end goal. It's a means to an end. We're not meant to immerse ourselves in the process, but to focus on the person. That's all. I think it's very easy to forget that. That this ministry isn't about, you know, events and it's not, it's not about all these things. It's about a person, Christ. And I forget that as a pastor as well sometimes. I need to remind myself. Because to be honest, sermon prep, after a long period of time, you do that week in, week out, it starts to feel more like an academic process. It feels like you're writing an essay once a week. And I have to remind myself that this is about revealing a person, not just a message. And so I encourage you guys this week, whether it's during your devotional time, during your prayer sessions, during your CGs, for anything, everything in this life must be pointing and must be about this person. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we repent of every time that we have lost sight of you. Every time that we've tried to remedy a symptom instead of trying to diagnose the disease. And so, Lord, we come before you as the great physician to examine our hearts, test our hearts, and help us to remedy the condition so that we might focus on the person rather than a process. Father, if there are sins that have been weighing down our heart, addictions, obsessions. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just focus on fighting the addictions in and of themselves, fighting sin in and of itself, but to find something greater, the person of Christ, so that as we gaze upon him, 
and understand more of his majesty and his glory, that the things of the world would grow pale by comparison, so that we might see that everything that can be found in Christ is more worthy, more valuable, and more precious than anything Satan might try to tempt us with, anything our flesh might try to tempt us with, so that we might find our true joy, our satisfaction, and our contentment in a person and not a process. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.